It's Monday, June 26th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So a major international incident goes down. You're a top American news show. You want a big get. You want the American responsible for foreign policy. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Okay, this is going to be good. No one is in a better position to answer the most important questions on the minds of Americans. So you ask, and he says. I think it's important for us not to, uh, to speculate. And then you try another tack. I'm obviously not going to comment on intelligence matters. And then you, meaning Chuck Todd, gets him to say this. Too, too soon to tell. And finally, the big one, the nuclear bomb, the bulletin board material. I think it does point to the, the fact that this is uh, uh, an internal matter. Wow. In eight minutes, a no comment, a too speculative, and not enough info. Maybe even a time will tell. Let's see if Margaret Brennan over on CBS's Face the Nation did better. Not looking good so far. Uh, Margaret, this is an unfolding story, and I think uh, we're in the midst of a moving picture. We haven't, seen, we haven't seen the last act. We got an I don't know. We got an I don't want to say. And I think we also got a not our business. It's an internal matter for the, the, the Russians to figure out. But Brennan did get Blinken to offer some perspective, which was this. Think about this fact. 16 months ago, Russians were amassing outside of Kiev. We figured it could fall. It did not. And now, 16 months later, hostile forces are on the door of Moscow. Huh. Think about that. And I did. And that was good. You want America's chief diplomat to be diplomatic. Perhaps not this opaque, but it is better than blabbing too much. Uh... I can't get into what we we know or don't know. Okay, no chance of that. I do have some follow-up questions, if you would, Mr. Secretary. Do you think LSU will be Florida in the College World Series? I don't want to speculate on that. Okay, okay. Um, If I leave here tomorrow, will you still remember me? I don't want to to speculate on that uh, or what information that uh, we have. All right, how about... um, Is the Yellow Jacket soccer team going to eat anyone else other than that one annoying girl and that other guy? Too too soon to tell. I think you might be wrong. On the show today, a glimpse, a scary glimpse into my mindset and methods of fact-checking a claim. But first, more Yevgeny Prigozhin, this time with an international expert who will get into that, though not irresponsibly so. Charles Kupchin is a Georgetown professor, senior fellow of the Council of Foreign Relations. He was a former top security expert in the Clinton administration. He was a former top security expert in the Obama administration. He is a Russia expert and watcher, and he joins us next. Yevgeny Prigozhin gets on the highway, winds up 150 miles from Moscow. The Belarus leader, Lukashenko, brokers a peace. Putin says some fighting words, then makes himself scarce, probably prudent, at least in the short term. I don't understand it. I think someone who has a better chance of figuring this all out is Charles Kupchan, former special advisor to President Obama. He's now a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, a professor at Georgetown. And just before I started saying those words, he was saying, wow, didn't expect this one to happen. You didn't, huh? No, Mike, uh, I don't think many people saw this coming. Apparently, the intelligence services in the United States had some inclination in the middle of last week that Prigozhin was thinking of carrying out some kind of revolt. But, uh, uh, you know, this is a weird, bizarre episode. 
and I think we need to be careful about drawing any conclusions because it ain't over. Yeah. You know, I'm hearing that Wagner shot down some Russian aircraft. I'm hearing that some Russian aircraft may have taken shots at Wagner on the highway. Maybe, maybe Prigozhin is getting amnesty and going to Belarus. But, you know, Putin usually poisons his enemies. He doesn't pardon them. Yes, he does. And they fall out of windows. And to skip ahead, why not just ask it? If he doesn't take action, some action against Prigozhin, will that mark him as especially weak or will it possibly show that the apparatus that he uses, that he has used in the past to take action, um, somehow objects or is no longer uh, at his beck and call? That's a tough one to, to answer. You know, I would say that my best guess is that he generally cracks down. And that when you when you look at other historical examples, let's say, how did President Erdogan of Turkey respond to the coup, attempted coup in 2016? Well, he really leaned in. He rounded up the usual suspects. He put people in jail. He took over the media. Uh, and my guess is that Putin will respond by cracking down even further inside Russia. And he may amp up the war in Ukraine. What exactly he does with Prigozhin and Wagner remains to be seen. I think it would be very unusual if some punishment isn't forthcoming. Because what we're hearing now is, well, he's going to go to Belarus and let bygones be bygones. And then we're going to integrate the Wagner forces into the Russian military. And you guys who were part of the convoy, don't worry about it. Everything's fine. Uh, something's not right about that story. There's another shoe that's going to drop. Yeah, the no hard feelings analysis, which does not characterize Putin's tenure thus far. No, no. no. And, you know, yes. Does he have a, a longstanding friendship with Prigozhin? Yes. Did he probably benefit from Prigozhin going after the defense minister and the chief of staff for the last year since the war began? Yeah, because it distracted attention for the failings of the Russian military away from Putin toward Gerasimov and Shoigu. Uh, But now this looks like uh, uh, the friends have become enemies. But again, let's see how this plays out in the coming days. Yeah, let's just do this. Let's go through the motivations of each of the figures. Let's go further back with Putin. I do understand that if you have a monster on the leash and you feel that you can unleash him on occasion, you might tell yourself that this is very useful to me. But how much does he understand that the history of people who have this attack dog or monster on the leash, the monster usually comes back at them? Well, you know, I think Wagner served a very useful purpose for Putin uh, because they were sort of an institution of the state and sort of not. So there was plausible deniability. But if you look at what Wagner has done over the last several years, really going back to 2014 when Putin went into Crimea and Donbass, they've been very effective in Ukraine, in Syria, in Libya, across as many as, I think, 15 African nations. So this is a this is a pretty good outfit when it comes to to mercenary forces. And I I think that in Ukraine over the last year, Wagner was outperforming the Russian military. When Putin really needed 
to get some territory, he'd call in Prigozhin. It was Wagner, after all, that finally took Bakhmut, this town in, in Donbass that they were fighting for. But it looks like what happened over the last few weeks is that Bakhmut fell, they handed it over to the Russian military. The Russian military started to lean in and say, wait, we don't like the fact that you're this kind of independent opera. We're going to start pulling you in to the core institutions of the state. And Prigozhin will say, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're stepping on my toes here. Uh, and then he eventually lost, uh, launched this rebellion. Yeah, that. So I want to get to the motivations of Prigozhin. I understand that he might tell himself, I, uh, I have Putin's favor. I've done Putin's bidding. I don't know. You could tell me how how often you think they actually communicate either directly or through emissaries. But what would be his motivation to think that marching to the Kremlin, the seat of Putin's power, yeah, the military commanders too, but Putin's power would be a move where Putin wouldn't object to it? I, I can't quite understand it. You know, I, I, I've been puzzling the same question, Mike. And, you know, number one, it's possible that he went a bit bonkers. Right. And that he just couldn't tolerate the idea that, you know, some of his marbles were being taken away because he really was an independent operator. And he got away with going after the military brass in a quite unusual way, a quite vitriolic way. And suddenly maybe they told him to, to pipe down and he said no. The other possibility is that he thought that he could peel away key elements of the state. He thought, for example, that maybe the military mm -hmm. would go with him, that regional governors might go with him, that intelligence services, the security services. It's conceivable to me that he thought that he could start a grassroots revolution and maybe topple Putin and become the new czar. Uh, but that didn't happen. I mean, I'm struck by the degree to which the Russian state more or less stayed with Putin. Uh, I haven't heard reports that the wheels started to come off. On the contrary, I think he was heading up the highway and he would have gotten completely chewed up had he actually gotten to Moscow. And the reason he might have had these misimpressions, if that's what they were, and there's evidence that it was, is because he operates within uh, a media ecosystem that celebrates him. He's a, let's say, brash, but he's an outrageous figure who uses his, relies on his public persona and public performance. So it's a very social media 2023 story. These aren't just generals or military leaders who, who let their tanks and guns and conscribed prisoners do the fighting. There's a lot of persona involved here. So maybe, you know, he got a little bit high on his own supply. Yeah, and maybe he miscalculated in a really serious way that that beneath the surface, there was discontent with the war in Ukraine. Because one of the things that he did that uh, that was really quite shocking to me was he basically said, the emperor has no clothes. This is an illegitimate war launched for illegitimate reasons. But he still went in and tried to win it. Very nihilistic uh, black pill type of thing to do. Yeah, but, but, to, but to basically question the fundamental rationale for the war and say that Mr. Putin has launched a war that is not in the national interests of Russia, I mean, them's fighting words. 
Uh, and that that makes me think that that he thought he was at the beginning of a movement that was going to gain steam. And he may have gotten to 150 miles from Moscow, looked behind him, saw nobody there except his own troops and said, holy moly, I better quit before it's too late. Right. How much what's what's there? Of finances, like how much money uh, does he make from his African mercenary excursions versus what he's been doing in Ukraine? I mean, I think that there's an enormous amount of money that's been flowing into his coffers, whether it is through operations. I mean, in Africa, they tend to be in countries where you can make a lot of money, yes. you know, minerals, diamonds, other things like that. I'm guessing that the Kremlin has been bankrolling Wagner because Wagner has been doing a pretty good job for them on the ground. So this is not a guy who has lacked money. He has at times lacked weapons and lacked armor. He's been complaining really since the war began and he put troops on the ground that the Russian military isn't giving him what he needs to prosecute the operations that he wants to carry out. Uh, and that is part of this tension that we've seen ongoing over the last months between Prigozhin and the brass that controls the military. Because I was just surmising that it might be the case that with a very rich, sometimes oil rich African warlords paying him to be to prop them up or to work along mercenaries, it might be the case that Africa is the cash cow and you, Ukraine is the cash drain. I don't uh, other than. Moscow giving him money directly. I don't see where the profit is in the Ukraine operation. So maybe what Lukashenko was offering, you'll still get to operate in Africa is actually, you know, if he survives, good for his bottom line. Yeah, you know, the whole Russian system is is corrupt and it's one of patronage. Uh, I, I share your view that in Ukraine, probably in Syria and probably in Libya, Wagner was spending much more than it's making. That then when you get to these other countries controlled by warlords, where they have oil, where they have minerals, where they have their hands on enormous deposits, uh, that's where I think Wagner has been, has been getting its money. Whether the Kremlin has been funneling oil revenues to him or other kind of backdoor payments, I don't know. We may never know. So the conventional wisdom is this certainly leaves Putin weaker. I don't see how it leaves him stronger. Does it weaken him or does it reveal his weakness, do you think? Somewhat both. Uh, you know, I would say that it weakens him because this rebellion shows that all is not well and that the state isn't entirely behind him and that there is discontent about the war in Ukraine. And I think it also is an embarrassment, you know, on the global stage to have a mercenary militia turn against the seat of power, that's a big deal. Uh, that having been said, this is not in my mind the beginning of the end of the Putin regime. Uh, as I said a few minutes ago, I have not yet seen press reports that major elements anywhere went with Wagner. On the contrary, most of the states seem to have stuck with Putin. And I'm guessing what he's going to do is tighten his grip.
Yeah. He's going to crack down more on dissent. He's going to crack down more on the media. He's going to send more missiles into Ukraine. Usually when strong men like this feel threatened, they react by strengthening, not by backing down. Right. So domestically, this is you could look at it like this was a stress test and Putin passed it Uh, internationally in terms of the war in Ukraine. You just talked about missiles. If uh, you were the average Ukrainian fighting force, would you be saying things are going to get harder from here on or things are going to maybe get easier since the Wagner group were some of the most effective forces and now they're off the uh, chessboard? I don't think there is much impact on the war in Ukraine. As far as we know, troops were not pulled away from the front, sent to Moscow to defend the city. Uh, uh, Wagner was already in the process of being semi-integrated into the military. I don't think Putin is going to see this as reason to back down. And on the other side, in Kiev, in Washington, in London, in Brussels, I think the the general impact of this bizarre set of events will be to double down, to say, hey, this is working. This is a war that has weakened Putin. There are cracks inside Russia. Let's keep at it. So I think we're going to see more of same, except I expect to see both Russia and the coalition supporting Ukraine double down and hunker down for the long haul. Yeah, because I hear... I hear Prigozhin sometimes described as hardliner or a hawk, but who's not a hawk in the Russian firmament? Is Putin not a hawk or his actual generals running the standard military not hawks? Who's anything other than a hawk? Well, you know, that that does raise the awkward question of it, if not Putin, who? Uh, because most of the criticism that Putin gets at home is for being too soft, not for being too hard. There are people, you know, basically people that I know, i.e. those that are more Western-oriented, who have been speaking up. Many of them have left the country. I have a couple friends who speak up and haven't left the country, and they're not in good shape. They're fearful for their security. Most of the intense criticism is coming from those who are saying, you need to do more in Ukraine. You need to go to the nuclear level. You need to turn up the gas here. Uh, and so if, if there were to be a change of regime, it could get worse, not necessarily better. Or, you know, we could just see civil war and a, and a Russia that, that begins to fragment. I don't think that's in anybody's interest. If Prigozhin had executed a coup, taken over, would he, what would be the procedure for him to gain control of the nuclear weapons? Would they just be given to him? Would people object? How would that play out? You know, it would be uh, uncharted territory. Uh, A lot would depend on whether the institutions of the state see him as a legitimate ruler and assume that he has authority. And with that authority would come the, uh, the ability to preside over the, the use of nuclear weapons. I mean, the good news here is that, you know, Russia, like the United States, has a secure nuclear system with all kinds of redundant protections. You know, this is not North Korea. It's not Pakistan. It's a country that's had nuclear weapons for decades. Yeah. And as a consequence, the nukes are, are pretty secure. 
But, you know, we don't we don't want a Russia that is falling apart amid a civil war. That's more dangerous than a Russia controlled by Putin. Is there anything that's being widely reported or assumed or cemented as conventional wisdom that you either take issue with or simply are not quite as on on board with as, say, the conventional wisdom would indicate? You know, the the um, the conventional wisdom is this is a big deal. This could be an inflection point in Russia. This is an opportunity for Ukraine. Um, I would say probably not. Um, uh, you know, let's let's wait until we have a better sense of what actually happened, what's going to happen to Prigozhin, what's going to happen to Wagner fighters. But my sense is a week or two from now, the situation on the ground in Ukraine, in Russia, between Russia and the West, isn't going to be that much different than it was before this rebellion. Yeah. I think historically when a czar has fallen or a ruler, it was because of some internal pressure, but the vast majority of internal pressure does not result in the czar losing his crown. No. And, you know, again, we don't yet have a lot of good info, but because we're relying on social media and the few reporters that are there. But I would need to have more evidence that things got quite rocky that Russians were shooting at Russians, that a segment of the population was going, was yelling, go Prigozhin, go Prigozhin, goodbye, Mr. Putin. I haven't seen any of that. Yeah. Uh, and that says to me that, you know, that Putin's reasonably uh, uh, secure and steady as she goes after a significant bump in the road. And finally, from your perch, from your experience, what sign or signs are you looking for next to give you some indication of uh, how to make meaning of all this? You know, I think we let's wait and see what happens to Prigozhin and, and, and Wagner. That will give us some sense of how Putin has, uh, has, has, has played the game here. You know, it's interesting to me that it, at least as far as we can tell, he reacted with considerable restraint. We did not see him dispatch waves of troops uh, and and sort of see this as a as an existential threat that needed to be snuffed out immediately. Uh, and so I don't I don't look at that and say, oh, Putin was weak. Oh, Putin was weak. I look at that and say, you know, Putin was restrained. He played this out. He gave it some time. This did not turn into. Uh, a civil war, uh, and it's that's why I would be cautious about saying that this is a that this is a game changer. I don't I don't think it is, uh, at least based upon the limited information that we have so far. Charles Kupchan was director of European Affairs on the NSC during the first Clinton administration. He was special assistant counsel to the president and senior director of European Affairs on the NSC in the Obama White House. He's a senior fellow at the Council of Foreign Relations and teaches at Georgetown University. Thank you once again so much, Charles. Pleasure to be with you, Mike. And now the spiel. 
Want a glimpse into my thought process? Trust me, you don't. Taking you there anyway. And by the end, you'll say, yeah, I don't know about that. Anyway, I take in way too much news and information with special attention being paid to sources that aren't the New York Times and Washington Post. Those are great sources. It's just that everyone in the news reads them, so almost all the information you get are riffs on what they say. I get the San Francisco Chronicle, the Sacramento Bee. I listen to weekly public affairs podcasts out of Phoenix and Texas and Chicago. I pay a lot of attention to police news and, of course, the Atlantic and the New Yorker. So what I do is if I see a stat, a stat I hadn't seen before, or an assertion of a fact, you know, something distinct or a study that strikes me as unusual in any way, I pursue it. Now, lucky for you, I don't bring you the results of all my ruminations. Unlucky for me, I have lots of ruminations. I'll take you someplace about a rumination that went essentially nowhere. The Sacramento Bee a couple weeks ago had a story about all the hit-and-run drivers in Sacramento. Of the more than 140 people killed by drivers who fled the scene in Sacramento County since 2018, dozens died on aging, busy corridors designed years ago. Now that raised a little red flag. 140 people killed by drivers who fled the scene since 2018. Why are they starting there? Is it to get that number up, 140? I mean, so what you're saying is that in the last, I don't know, five and a half years, an average of 22, 23 people were killed a year. Is that a lot? Is that a little? I have nothing to compare that to. If they said an average of 22 people a year, I'm not sure what I would think. The B itself helpfully provided county statistics, and it turns out the county Sacramento's in wasn't even one of the worst counties. It was, I think, the third worst in the state. So I started looking up the city of Sacramento, half a million people. Let's compare it to cities of other size. Mesa, Arizona is a city of that size. Mesa doesn't break out their statistics by hit and run, but the state of Arizona does, and a few other states do. So I compared Sacramento's statistics to other statewide statistics. And yeah, it does seem that Sacramento has, you know, slightly more hit, deadly hit and run drivers than a lot of other places. Normally, I wouldn't even bother you with it, but I'm not saying I was bothered, but I'm doing this two or three times a day. I kind of can't not. In another area of interest. I was reading an old review of Rosa Brooks's book about policing written in the New Republic. It's written by Patrick Blanchfield. It was surprising to me because it's pretty well written and argued and a fair argument, which for a publication whose fairness often underwhelms me, is somewhat surprising. But then we get to the unfair point where the author makes some ridiculous assertions. So he's talking about Shot Spotter, which is the technology deployed in big cities to sonically monitor for gunshots and quickly rush ambulances and services, but also investigations into the area. Shot Spotter, he writes, Shot spotter towers do not blanket wealthy white suburbs, and the reason is not that gun homicide is hyper-concentrated among the black and poor, but that stop... Gun homicide is hyper-concentrated among the black and poor. I don't know, maybe hyper is doing some work there that technically he's not asserting that it's mostly among the black, but it is. Most victims of gun crime are black. Most perpetrators of gun homicides are black in America today, and they are mostly poor. He goes on. The reason that ShotSpotter isn't in white suburbs is that there are no equivalent systems for swiftly dispatching armed police in response to wage theft by retail managers, rape in frat houses, or cocaine use in yacht clubs. Oh, evocative, but why might there be no technological system to sniff out cocaine sniffing in yacht clubs? I mean, I'm sure if they had such a sniffer sniffer system, they'd get more hits in the black inner city than they would in the yacht clubs. But the reason is that 
Snorting cocaine, not selling cocaine, using cocaine is far, 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 far less serious than shooting someone or getting shot. And putting aside the idea of retail wage theft as possibly equivalent, I mean, this is accounting chicanery and is wrong, but it can't be detected by sonar, and it's not an urgent matter of life and death. I get the rhetoric. It's a list of social complaints, societal complaints from a leftist's point of view. I share some of those complaints. And he's saying these injustices are met with less urgency than gun crimes, but I think it's all horrible. But none of that is what I even want to talk about. It was that phrase in the middle. Rapes in frat houses. How many rapes are there in frat houses? I wondered. You see, this is where my brain gets me. So I googled prevalence, rape, fraternity. First, three of the first four responses. One was an NIH study on a slightly different topic. The Guardian. Frat brothers rape 300% more. That's the headline. The next, Los Angeles Times columns. Fraternities are incubators of sexual assault. Studies this from 2021. Studies have found fraternity men are three times more likely to rape women than non-affiliated classmates. Most gang rapes reported on campus are from or take place in fraternities. That was the lead sentence that studies have found that they were three times more likely to rape. And then the third of the fourth hits were a law, was a law firm saying, studies have found that men in fraternities are three times more likely to rape the men who are not in fraternities. I don't disbelieve it. I don't say it can't be true, but I was wondering about those studies. But first I was wondering about the gang rapes in fraternities. There was that big UVA case and it was uh, discredited. And so out of curiosity, point one, I said, how many recent gang rapes have there been? in frat houses. It seems like there have been two arrests in the last six years. One was in New Jersey, Ramapo College, I believe, and one was in Florida. The charges in Florida were dropped. You could never tell where they dropped for lack of evidence. Was there really a rape? There seemed to have been some sort of spiking of the punch alleged in that situation, though prosecutors didn't bring charges and the other one they did. But there was a big drop-off in gang rapes, at least reported gang rapes, in frat houses in the last six years. So where does this author get the idea that most rapes on college campuses occur in frat houses. I click the link, there's a 2013 reference to another study. And that other study was a 1991 study. And in 1991, Chris O'Sullivan found out that 55% of the gang rapes reported on college campuses between 1980 and 1990 were in fraternity houses. How many gang rapes were reported on college campuses then? It was 24. So we're talking about in 2021, we're putting in the front page of the LA Times, 40 years ago, there was slightly more than one fraternity gang rape per year, which is bad, which is horrible. What a horrible crime. But it seems like we're recycling a not particularly rigorous study from a long time ago that might not accurately describe what's going on. Not even the main statistic I was interested in. But rather than take my mind, which is a kind of run-on sentence, and implant it into yours and jangle the synapses, I'm going to take a breath. I'm going to gather myself, and I'm going to promise you tomorrow the results of my study that no one asked for about the assertion of the prevalence of sexual assault by fraternity men versus non-fraternity men. The results just might shock you, though I'm sure they won't because you know what I'm teeing up is these aren't good studies. That's it for today's show. The Gist is produced by Corey Wara. The 
Senior producer is Joel Patterson. Michelle Pesca is CLO of Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, Jeeperoo, Dooperoo, and thanks for listening.